welcome to Sustain, the podcast where we talk about sustaining open source for the long haul. Who are we? Where did we come from? Where are we going? Why am I still fighting PHP? I don't understand. I don't understand. Very excited about today's guests on this podcast. Unlike most sustained podcasts, the only panelist today is me, Richard Litauer. So hello, everyone. I am doing well. Thank you for asking. And our guest today is Dries Boitert, which I tried very hard, probably to pronounce it right, but most of the internet knows him as Dries anyway. Dries is, of course, one of the founders, if not the founder of Drupal. We'll get into that. And the CTO of Acquia, which is a company that he founded to help out Drupal. Drupal is, of course, a massive project. And Acquia is a very successful open source company. Together, they managed to serve 2% of the web. So not a small amount of the web is being built based on this open source stuff. I'm just very excited to get into this podcast. So let's just get right into it. Dries, thank you so much for coming on the show. How are you doing? I'm doing well, and thanks for having me. I'm excited to be on the show. <laughs> thank you so much for being here. Dries, you have a, such a long history in open source and with Drupal and with Acrea, and you have a blog where you've written over 1,500 blog posts. So there's so much we could get into. And so just mm -hmm. to start context-wise, for listeners who haven't ventured into either open source or Drupal or PHP land, can you tell us how it all started? Like, how did you end up with Drupal? So I started Drupal 21 or 22 years ago. So a long time ago. And okay. for those that don't know, Drupal is obviously open source, but it's software that people and organizations use for building websites. And so yep. Drupal actually got started as my own personal website. <laughs> I was a student at the university in Antwerp, Belgium, where I was born and raised. And I was building websites actually before I started working on Drupal and I was using Perl and we would write data to files. And around that time, PHP was invented and yep. MySQL was also a new kid on the block, if you will. And so I figured like, you know what, instead of writing websites in Perl and writing data to files, how about I learn PHP and MySQL? And honestly, I just wanted to spend a couple of evenings dabbling with these two technologies and ended up building like a message board for our dorm. And those two nights that I planned to spend working on that little project ended up being sort of 21 years of my life. So very quickly, that little message board evolved into an experimental platform. I would dabble with kind of emerging web technologies. And then eventually I decided to make the software behind my message board available as open source. And that became Drupal in 2001. That is awesome. I feel like I'm watching Social Network, except possibly done right, as opposed to the other way around. So that's the best. So Drupal is now a huge project. Can you give me a sense of how many contributors you have, how many websites yeah. are served by Drupal? Yeah, right. Between 2 and 3% of all the websites in the world run on Drupal. And actually, if you look at the enterprise segment, it's closer to one out of 10. So Drupal tends to be used for bigger, more complex, higher traffic, yep. more custom websites versus maybe more the low ends of the website market, if you will. And we actually have one of the largest and most active open source communities. Every year, around 10,000 people contribute to Drupal, primarily code, but also in other ways. And around 1,200 different organizations 
actively contribute to Drupal, including Pfizer, J&J, and some very large end users of Drupal that are active contributors to the project. So over 10,000 people every year that make contributions. So it's pretty good. And we also have a nonprofit behind Drupal, something called the Drupal Association. And today we have about 4 million in annual revenue and about, I would say, 20 full-time employees. So anyway, that's obviously in addition to sort of the community at large. We do have a nonprofit behind the project. And so hopefully that gives you a sense of that as well, which is probably one of the larger open source nonprofits too. I think 4 million isn't a whole lot of money in one way. (laughs) I mean, in, in other ways it is, but I do think it's probably one of the larger open source nonprofits in the world. Yeah. And we've had Rachel Lawson on the podcast. Rachel Lawson used to work with Drupal Association. That's right. Absolutely wonderful person. Been coming to Sustain for years. Through her, we got this interview. So thank you, Rachel. Hope you're doing well wherever you are right now, probably in England. So that's awesome about the Drupal Association. Tell me a bit more about Acquia. What's the difference and what does Acquia do? Yeah, it's funny. Like seven years into Drupal... I was doing a PhD in computer science, had nothing to do with Drupal, but I would spend my nights and evenings working on Drupal and sort of six, seven years into the project, ended up spending a lot of my evenings helping large organizations with their Drupal sites. And by the way, I would do this free of charge. I never asked any money for this, but things like MTV launched their new website on Drupal and it crashed. And I would take that like personal, like, I felt like I really needed to help them because Drupal's brands is attached to the success of these organizations launching uh, websites yeah. on Drupal. And so I would spend my evenings on conference calls with engineers at MTV, for example. And this is before Zoom and other video conferencing. And so I felt like in order for Drupal to be successful, there needed to be an organization like Acquia that helps large organizations be successful with open source. And it was modeled after Red Hat. What Red Hat did for Linux, I wanted to do for Drupal. And that's really how Acquia was born. And today, and Acquia has been around for about 15 or so years. Today, we're over 1,500 employees. And we're approaching around 300 million in annual revenue, just to give you a sense. And so we must be one of the larger open source companies as well. I would say, and we continue to grow at a very healthy pace. Now, today we still do support for Drupal, by the way, but yep. we also do a lot of other products and services around open source and around Drupal. So most of the business is Drupal based, I would say, but we also acquired another open source company actually called Modic, which is kind of an open source Marketo or open source yep. email marketing tool. That's a much smaller project and a much smaller community, but We're slowly but steadily contributing to that project and growing it. And obviously, we have some commercial services around it as well. So I think maybe what's interesting about my story, Richard, is that obviously I'm an open source project lead and founder still today. I've done the open source nonprofit and continue to do that, but I've also done an open source company. So I've experienced sort of with all of those three different organizational models and I've scaled all three. So kind of it gives me an interesting viewpoint. I think that's maybe, you know obviously irrelevant for this podcast, but different ways of scaling and investing in open source. Yeah. And we haven't had anyone of your exact caliber on this podcast before. Not saying that other people aren't great, but I'm saying that other people don't normally run two very large companies that do this amazing work. And I've also founded something like Drupal. There are other people like you in the world. You're not alone, obviously. 
Right. But it is a new perspective. So you've written already about sustainability. Sustainability is something that you know about. In your blog recently, you do, a, what is it, a Drupal Roundup or an Acquia Roundup? I forget which. And you're giving back already to the open source community. For instance, I think you just put $25,000, not you personally, but I believe Drupal yeah. did, towards the PHP Foundation. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, like a PHP project started. They actually had, didn't have a, a nonprofit foundation, which is remarkable because obviously yeah. they're large and predate Drupal. And they just decided to start a foundation and they were sort of trying to get their initial capital together and we made a donation. I mean, it's one of the reasons why I started Acqui actually, as I said, to help invest in Drupal, to help grow Drupal. And so we contribute back to Drupal all the time. I don't know, between 20 and 30 full-time engineers that work. I mean, we have, I should say we have more than 20 or 30 engineers, but like (laughs) 20 or 30 of them are full-time contributors to Drupal. Yeah. That's their day job. Yeah. And uh, everything that they write, we open source. So I would view you as a success. One of my questions is, do you think that Drupal has done so well and Acquia has done so well because your goal was to make Drupal better and not to make, say, you better or your group of friends working on it better? Do you think it's that sort of altruism that actually helps the entire community? Yeah, I think so. I mean, the reason why Drupal is successful, I think, is because we created an awesome ecosystem and community around the project. There's thousands of organizations that make money with Drupal. They're primarily digital agencies, website builders, or system integrators, and they're just everywhere around the world. And I think the reason why Drupal is successful is because all of us, or maybe not all of us, but a lot of us in that ecosystem, including Acquia, have decided to contribute back to Drupal. And so we've had so many contributors. I rattled off some of these stats in the beginning of this podcast. And I think Drupal has been successful because one, organizations can make money with Drupal. We have a large ecosystem. And secondly, because we've created a culture where we encourage contribution and we celebrate contribution as well. So I think these two things are really important in my mind. I would agree with you. Taking this a bit further, you know, enlightened self-interest is Denise Cooper's idea of open source. And she's used that a lot, I believe, on this podcast as well. I've always thought of it that way. It's in my interest to contribute to open source projects. You wrote in uh, a recent blog post on your website about balancing makers and takers to scale and sustain open source. The links will be in the show notes so that you want to check on this. And you talk a bit more about everyone's favorite economic theorist, Eleanor Ostrom, who talks about managing commons effectively and how there's ways to manage commons without having centralization or privatization. And one of the ways you can do this is you don't just appeal to people's self-interest, but you appeal to their fairness principle. I'm curious, can you explain a bit more about what the fairness principle means? Because it sounds like that's what you're talking about when you talk about the Drupal community. Typically, when open source projects or other communities are small, people will be fair to each other (laughs) because cultural norms are very strong. If you are misbehaving in a small community of 10 people, like everybody sees it and they will call you out on it. So small communities that can rely on, let's say, self-governance. I think a lot of self-governance is about just being a good person and being fair to each other. But the challenge is as communities grow, open source projects grow, that governance model typically needs to be reformed. Imagine now you're part of a community with 10,000 people 
you might be more tempted to act in a way that's maybe less fair because you're like, you know what? <laughs> nobody's going to notice. Nobody's going to call me out versus when you are a very small community. But I do think people generally like to be fair to others, especially if they feel like it's visible to others. I like that. I also think that people do want to be more fair to each other. One of my questions for you is looking at the Drupal community, you said there are thousands of companies that make money off it, which is awesome. But some of that money doesn't end up in your pocket, which arguably is okay. You're not the only contributor anymore. But I'm curious how you view fairness when you also view it, say anyone can take the project and and run it for free. Are you hoping that there's enough people out there who are fair enough to donate back to the project that it works all right? Yeah, most people don't contribute back. And I call them takers in that blog post in contrast to makers who are those people that help build the Drupal project. And one of the things that we do in Drupal is we encourage makers and we do that through a variety of different ways. But one of the things that we've innovated is a a credit system. And so every contribution we kind of record, we capture that in almost in a ledger, if you will. And the more you contribute, the more points you get, if you will. And then we use these points or these scores to promote those that contribute. So for example, we have a list of all of the contributors while we rank them by amounts of contribution. And the idea being that we want to drive visibility to those individuals or organizations that contribute. And a lot of this is based on this notion. And again, it's also in this blog post, which is around public goods and common goods. The idea of people often say open source is a public good. And it is, right? And what it means is that if you use Drupal, I can still use Drupal. You using something doesn't mean I can use it anymore. It's like a radio. It doesn't matter if two people listen to the radio or 10 million people listen to the radio. But the thing that I concluded is that open source is also a common good, and specifically open source leads, I call them, like potential customers and customers. And so a common good is different from a public good in that it is rivalrous, meaning it's more like fish in the ocean. If you eat a fish... I mean, fish is available for everyone to eat, but if you eat a fish, I can't eat it anymore because you ate it. And so if you think about the people that go to an open source website and that are looking maybe for a company to help them, that is not a public good. That is a common good. Meaning if you win a deal with a customer, I can't win that deal. And so basically we've said the software is public good. But the leads, the potential customers are not public goods, they're common goods. And we want to route these customers to those that give back the most. So we built this credit system to build this whole system, which actually has been great in terms of helping to incentivize organizations to contribute back to the project. Like people will contribute because it increases their visibility in the project and in turn allows them to make money building Drupal websites. So it's not just for individuals. It's also for, say, companies that can happen. Yeah, Drupal agencies. Yeah. Maybe another way to think about it is like an open source dividend. If a customer goes to company A and company A doesn't contribute to Drupal, there's almost no benefit to the project. I mean, there's still benefit in people using Drupal. Don't get me wrong. However, if I send this customer to one of our top contributors, then I know that for every thousand dollars that they make, they'll give back a hundred dollars to Drupal. And so like now I feel like I should send 
all of the Drupal leads to this agency because that's how Drupal is going to get better because I know there's this, you know, between quotes, dividends that this organization pays versus this other organization. It's like they pay a 0% dividend to Drupal. I don't know if that's a more helpful comparison or not. So this notion of routing leads or potential leads and customers to those that give back the most is something that we've been trying to harness and experiment with. And it's been actually been pretty interesting when you talk to these agencies, they will say that they contribute more because it helps their ranking and it helps their credibility in our marketplace, in the Drupal marketplace, and that helps them win deals. And it's pretty interesting. Another thing we've done, Richard, as an example, is we've cultivated this. I don't think other open source projects do this well enough, but this credit system is also used by end users. And Pfizer, as an example, have adopted this. And so has the state of Georgia. So basically what they do is when they work with other companies to build their websites, like Pfizer has thousands of websites and state of Georgia, I think has a few hundred websites. So they constantly are working with all these digital agencies and system integrators. And they've said, we will only work with you if you can tell us that you contribute to Drupal. If you have never contributed to Drupal, you're automatically eliminated, (laughs) right? And so now the Accentures of the world or local agencies around the world, they actually contribute to Drupal. They get these credits or points, and then they use that. They can show it to Pfizer and say, look, here's my records of contributing to Drupal. And then Pfizer says, great, you've contributed to Drupal. Now you can do business with us. And it's a win-win, right? It's a win for Drupal because it encourages people to contribute. But it's also a win for these end users like the Pfizer's of the world because they know that the people that have helped build Drupal are actually the best people to hire. They mm. know the software the best because they helped build it. <laughs> so why wouldn't they want to hire those organizations first above other organizations? So anyway, there's a lot of interesting dynamics in this that Drupal, I think, has been sort of pioneering and, and, and spearheading that I haven't seen propagate to uh, other open source projects yet. But I think it's these kinds of things that we need to try and figure out ways to make open source projects more sustainable. I mean, I think it's a big problem. If I think about open source, like open source is everywhere, you know, it has one, right? I don't know many developers that wake up in the morning and say, hmm, Let's see what proprietary software I can buy today. (laughs) I mean, nobody does that. Like people start with open source. But at the same time, while open source software and open source projects have won, open source businesses haven't really. There aren't a lot of examples of very successful open source businesses or large open source nonprofits. And I think we've got work to do because if we can crack that code, if we can make more companies, open source companies, I think the sky is the limit. I think it's the final thing that holds back open source (laughs) is the sustainability of it. And that's why I think the work that you guys do is so important to figure out the sustainability of open source, because think about it. It's the last thing we have to solve in my mind around open source. I know I've been on a long rant here, but I will also say that there are a lot of problems in the world that can learn from open source in terms of how we can go after solving some big problems. Like climate change, as an example, yep. is um, obviously it's a very big problem in the world. And it's what's interesting is that no individual country can solve it. Everybody has to collaborate on solving it. 
And I think that things that we're doing in open source, figuring out how to make people work together, how to coordinate people around the world, how to build incentive models to do certain things, like maybe help with climate change. I think all of the things that we were learning in open source, hopeful that these can be applied more broadly to like non-software problems. You know, I'm not saying open source is going to solve climate change, but I do think there's a set of problems, multi-stakeholder problems that span geographic boundaries, et cetera, et cetera, that are really hard to solve. And sustainability, making sustainable organizations that can go after these things is also important. And I'm hopeful open source can spark some of that. Couldn't agree more. Love it. Thank you so much. I also have so many questions. So first off, your ranking algorithms, the way that you help contributions have points, is that open source? Is, can that be easily applied to other projects? Can someone just NPM install and have it go? It's public. Okay. It's not in NPM. <laughs> we build it actually. So it's funny. So Drupal has its own kind of GitLab or GitHub. We build our own tooling before GitHub and GitLab existed. And we've been trying to migrate to these solutions, but we've always hit limitations actually, because we do so many things that these yeah. like GitLab and GitHub don't do that are like, how do you make tens of thousand people work together on a single project? Well, guess what? We've solved a lot of unique things in Drupal, whereas GitLab and GitHub was great for 10 people working together or hundred people working together. But we also have 40,000 modules in Drupal, right? So if this oh. interesting architecture, like how do we make collaboration amongst all these maintainers behind all of these modules? Anyway, being long-winded again, that we are actually moving from our own homegrown development environments to GitLab. And one of the things we will do is we will port the credit system because it's, it's tightly integrated into you know, our Git workflows to, I don't know what it's called in GitLab, but like a module or a plugin. And yeah, we will make it open source, but it's not that hard. You have to figure out how you want to implement it. That is a hard problem to solve for most people. So if we can make it easier, especially as people leave the self-governance stage, right? As projects go from 10 to 100 to 1,000 contributors, that's when it starts to become a bit of a hassle. So I was curious. Moving forward with some of the other questions I have, you obviously believe in foundations. PHP Foundation just got started. You invested in that. I love that. Mm -hmm. There seems to be a proliferation of foundations right now for open source, but there hasn't been a proliferation of open source foundations together with large companies that help support them, the Drupal Acquia mix. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious if you have any advice to people interested in setting that up or through any, any mistakes that you made along the way that could have been a whole lot easier, kind of open-ended. What do you think about that whole process? Well, I think, first of all, different configurations can work. I'm not saying this yeah. is the best model or, you know, like I do think there's examples of different models. You have the Apache Foundation, which is very nonprofit yep. oriented. You have maybe WordPress and Automatic, which is a little bit more around privatization, where Automatic manages WordPress.com and all of the domain names. And then you have Drupal, which is in between in a way where Drupal.org and the websites are managed by the nonprofits, our association, our foundation, and Acquia is just a player amongst thousands of other players. And I think each of those have pros and cons for sure. I think the reason I went with this model is actually because Drupal predated Acquia. By the time I started Acquia, seven years into Drupal, and there was actually an ecosystem and it didn't feel right for Acquia to come in and say, all right, now we're going to run Drupal.org or something. Yeah. And I felt really strongly that Acquia needed to be a player just like any other player without unique benefits because it was my company 
So I try yeah. to keep a really strict separation between my role as project lead and my role at Acquia. And even when as far as, I don't think I've shared this publicly, but like when I started Acquia, I raised $7 million for our Series A. And yep. I actually had all of the investors sign a piece of paper. I mean, obviously don't know the exact words, but it basically said that I, Dries, can do whatever I want <laughs> to the Drupal project, even if it financially harms Acquia. Awesome. They signed it. And I'm like, you know what? I need to know that you believe in open source and that you will always prioritize the open source project over commercial interests. And that was really important to me because that's how you actually built a successful open source project. And so I've gone above and beyond really to have this model that we have, which I think is best in the, for the long-term success of Drupal, hmm. but it's not necessarily how you go the fastest. Like I think you can go faster when one organization, one company gets most of the benefits of the open source project. Like, and we've yep. seen this with like MongoDB, to some extent, even automatic because it can monetize WordPress.com. So when one organization can make most of the money, <laughs> they can actually invest a lot of money in the open source project if they choose to. Yeah. And it allows you to go faster. The question is what happens to the project when that organization, let's say, stops to exist or ownership changes or whatever happens to the organization. So I think there's this notion of go fast and there's this notion of like, how do you build an open source project that is maybe around 20 years, 30, 40, 50, 100 years from now? Yeah. If you think about how do you build an organization that will last for 100 years, I do believe it needs to be more decentralized, like what we've done with Drupal, where there's many different players in the ecosystem and nobody gets sort of advantages just because they started it. <laughs> And so that's why the Drupal Association, the kind of one of their roles is to be the maintainers of the credit system and use fairness to come back to the beginning of this conversation to distribute leads and visibility in a fair way relative to the amount of contribution relative to the size of organization as well. Because we can't expect a small organization to contribute as much as Acquia, right? We have to be mindful of how we do that. But anyway, I think... Different models exist. I think if you go the R model, you have to take a long-term viewpoint. You don't build a large community overnight. It literally takes decades, like in the case of Drupal. Taking a bit of a left turn, I love everything you're saying. I agree with it very much. Earlier, you mentioned something about open source is also a common good as well as being a public good. So leads are common goods. The open source itself, you know, run as many times as you want. It's a public good. It's inexhaustible. Recently, I've been seeing a lot of work put into thinking of open source as being uh, digital infrastructure. So the idea being that it's actually underpinning our society at this point, what doesn't run on open source. And therefore, we should start thinking about possibly funding it from a government or something. You mentioned that the state of Georgia has a, a rule that if you use Drupal, you also have to contribute back to Drupal. Otherwise, we won't consider you which brings to my mind maybe some worries about vendor lock-in, which is another big negative thing pointed at open source projects. I'm curious about your views on both digital infrastructure in general, the idea that it's not just a public good, but it's a publicly held good and, and should be managed collectively by, say, governments, and your view about what that would look like on the ground. First of all, I, 
I agree in a way. <laughs> yeah. So I do think a lot of things in the world that start as volunteer driven. Yep. They go through different phases of maturity. Usually something starts out as volunteer driven. Phase two is usually a commercialization phase. Hmm. And phase three, the last phase is where it becomes infrastructure. And this happened to the school system. Even people started schools was kind of voluntarily. You would teach kids in your house, maybe invite the neighbor's kids. (laughs) I'm talking about hundreds of years ago. And then eventually somebody said, you know what? We should do this more organized. And then like commercial schools were invented. And at some point, these commercial schools were so important that the government said, you know what? Everybody should have access to schools. We are going to centralize it, if you will. And the same thing happened to the road system, to the military. I mean, people just defended their villages and then you could pay for people to defend your villages. And eventually the government said, no, we as a country, we're going to have a military operation. So you can see this pattern of everything evolves from volunteer, commercial phase, and sort of government-owned things. Maybe it's not that black and white, but I think a lot of things go through this evolution. And the same thing I think is true for open source projects. So I think those open source projects have become really large. They have to be run by some sort of, between quotes, government organization. And I don't think it has to be the federal government or a local government. It could be a nonprofit organization. But I think when open source projects become so important for millions of people, I do think we need to think about how do we institutionalize the operations of the project. So maybe our actual governments can be more involved um, with running open source, but I'm not sure they have to. I will say that governments are spending a lot of money on open source. I mean, Drupal is used pretty much every branch of the government, the same thing for other content management systems that are open source. I do believe that they could do more. I also believe that all of the software that is developed with public money should be made public. (laughs) There's billions and billions of dollars going into all sorts of software projects that are not open source today. But if it's funded by public money, by our tax dollars, they should make it open source. So I think that's maybe one way that the government can embrace open source and help fund it. It should be enforced by law, in my opinion. I know that's probably a strong opinion. And I do think there's some exceptions, (laughs) maybe super sensitive military kind of things that maybe you don't want open source. I get that. But like as a rule, 90% of the case, I would say people should open source it. And often I think it's really important. For example, we send people to prison based on DNA analysis tools. Well, proprietary software. I mean, like, how do I know this software actually is working correctly. Anyway, it's a longer topic and I'm taking us off track here, Richard, but I do believe in digital infrastructure and I do believe in government taking a bigger role. I think we need to find the right governance models and sustainability models that are appropriate for the face or the maturity of the open source project. I agree with you. Again, this has really been just topic after topic. What's the best thing that could be said right now to make Richard happy, which is kind of weird. So, but thank you so much. This is really great. One question I have next is, what do you think the challenges are for open source sustainability? What's the hardest thing right now for you even? I think one of the biggest challenges that we need to figure out is coordination systems. 
I think open source project fails when they grow and the coordination becomes really hard. And typically projects need to move from sort of uncoordinated action or very little coordinated action because everybody sees what everybody else is doing. You don't need a lot of coordination. You just need to keep your eyes open. (laughs) Two, when projects become really large, you need to be really thoughtful about how to cooperate and coordinate your actions. And that transition is really hard. And I think there's a lot that we haven't figured out yet. Yeah. Uh, and I think we're actually probably a little bit nervous <laughs> to roll out some of these changes and maybe it's maybe reluctant to experiment with these changes. And this is where I think the work of Ostrom is so important. So if you're not familiar with Ostrom, she studied communities, not necessarily open source communities, but she studied communities that have existed for sometimes hundreds of years. Communities around irrigations or communities that live or depend on forests and, and these kinds of things. She actually won the Nobel Prize, I think, for some of her work. She, you know, It's economic theory around coordination system, but I think it's really relevant here for us. But basically, she said you can organize yourself in different ways. You could be self-governance and what have you, but she actually came up with a number of, I think she calls it design rules or design principles, patterns that she saw over and over again, kind of the core principles, design principles that need to be in place for communities to su- sustain. If these principles aren't implemented, these communities tend to, to stop exist, unfortunately, sometimes after 10, 20, 30, 40 years. And I think what was interesting when I read her book, which I think is called Governing the Commons. So basically what she said is actually very profound for open source is that access to the shared resource needs to become closed, unfortunately. This goes back to the common goods versus public good. And these communities, they need to close the access to their good, whether it's a forest or irrigation or water. And they need to put in place explicit rules to determine how the resources are shared and who is going to be responsible for the maintenance and how they're going to deal as a community with sort of self-serving behaviors that don't help maintain the common good. If you think about that for a minute, that's actually different (laughs) from how we define open source today. We often say, oh, everybody can use everything for free all the time. And what she's saying after studying long running communities, like actually you have to control the access to the resource and you have to put rules and patterns in place to make sure that we maintain the shared resource. And today, I don't think we're experimenting enough with that as open source projects in general. And we're trying in the Drupal community with the credit system, but I do think it might be time and maybe this you won't agree with, (laughs) which is fine. (laughs) But like, I think it's time to actually think about experimenting with open source licenses. Should we evolve open source licenses a little bit based on what we have learned? Because frankly, a lot of us use open source licenses that were invented 25 years ago. (laughs) The world has changed quite a bit. So there are some interesting experiments going on, like the, I think it's a business source license that MariaDB created. Basically, they say you can use this software for free as long as you don't use it more than X where X can be pretty large. And so it's how do you build in some restrictions or how do you enforce contribution and shared responsibilities in your license? I think that's interesting and I think it could be really powerful, but it means that collectively we have to maybe evolve our definition of open source, which I know 
for some people is almost like the no-go zone, let's say. It is. It's hard. I mean, open source, the OSI's definition doesn't allow you to choose who uses your license. It doesn't allow you to choose who pays and who doesn't, which is one of the hardest things I would say stops innovation. I think Justin Dorfman, one of our most active panelists, would disagree with that actively. But there are people who are working on that. I just want to give a shout out to Greg Bloom. Greg's been coming to the same conferences for ages and runs the Eleanor Ostrom Working Group, which is always ready to be kicked off if anyone's interested. He's often on the forum. Eleanor Ostrom is amazing. I have her book here. Very interesting to me to think about how we can innovate effectively. BSL licenses, dual licensing. I mean, Kyle Mitchell's blog is really excellent for looking at like how licenses can actually be put down and which ones can you use together and what's happening innovatively. What's hard is that it's tough to talk about licensing. And once you get to the licensing question, you already have to have the governance question in hand. Otherwise, it just ends up being a a bit of a free-for-all on the forums or the GitHub issues or whatever. So I agree with you. I think you're right. I love the idea of coordinating being a hard problem. Um, It's a problem that, that you scale into. Mm-hmm. Because it's not something we talk about often. We often talk about governance. We often talk about how can I get money? How can I use the money I have? But we talk about diversity and how can we give accolades to all of our contributors. But just coordinating itself as a focal point is something I haven't heard recently or often. And I really like that. It reminds me of a lot of the military history books I've read. I'm a military history buff. And the best generals are the people who manage to get wagon trains to their troops on time. Which is like not something you think of. You think, oh, the best generals make snap decisions and sleep for six hours and know which hill to invade. It's like, no. Right. I think a lot of problems boil down to being coordination problems. That's why I'm so keen about this topic, I guess. (laughs) Like growing larger and larger is a coordination problem. Sustainability is often a coordination problem. I agree with that entirely. Okay. Love that. Wish we could talk further. For those of you who are interested, we do have a forum where you can jump in on these topics and we can maybe work it out together. Very interested to talk more on this all the time. But given time is wrapping up, Dries, what are you most excited about sustainability-wise coming up with either with Acquia, Drupal, or just open source in general? What's really got you excited, say, this week? I'm actually honestly very excited about some of the experiments that we're doing in the Drupal project. I really do feel like with the credit system, we are sort of in new water. We'll see what we learn and find out. And hopefully we can bring that to the larger open source community too. They can learn from what we're doing. So to me, that's exciting because I know it can have this ripple effect to the broader open source world, which is exciting. For those of our listeners who are interested, where can they dip their toes into these warm waters? Where can you follow along? Yeah, we actually on Drupal.org, you probably have to you know, search or Google for it. But if you search for Drupal and credit system, you'll find several kind of announcements. I think it's in our announcements forum on Drupal.org that we give updates. But I've also written about it on my own personal blog, which is yep. dri.es. So Dries with a dot. <laughs> yeah, if you search my blog posts, you'll find maybe credit system or something. You'll find a bunch of blog posts about it as well. Love that. Random aside, are you contractually obligated to make a ton of water metaphors? Actually, I'm not. (laughs) Okay. Well, you do an excellent job at it. It's just they're raining down everywhere. Oh, yeah. Funny. I'm not even aware of it anymore. But yeah, I guess it's good because Drupal's logo is a a droplet. Yes, it is. All right. Thank you so much, Dries. Don't leave yet. This is the part of the show where we talk about other people. 
So welcome to Spotlight. Spotlight is just a little tack on where we say projects, people, or things that have really moved us or just need some more love. My Spotlight is going to cheat. We've already mentioned this person on this podcast. Rachel Lawson is fantastic. If you haven't met her, I really am sad for you and hope that is amended soon. Talk to Rachel about open source sustainability and talk to Rachel about motorcycles. She is totally awesome. She's been on this podcast. So take a listen to that. I'll drop the link in the show notes. And I just want to say how much her personal friendship and just hanging out in this community has made it a better place for me to be here. So thank you, Rachel, for being the best. Dries, what is your spotlight today? Can I be a little generic, but I'd like to, to give a shout out to all of the open source diversity and inclusion communities. Yeah. Like the one in Drupal, but also in other projects. I think the work they're doing is really important. Open source has actually very poor diversity, I would say. And it's great to see people passionate about it. And it's often not easy, the work that they do. It's driving change that's sometimes deeply ingrained with people. And so shout out to all the work that these communities, these individuals do. I think it's really important. Change is slow sometimes, but that's why we have to encourage them to keep at it as hard as as it is. Love that. Dries, finally, thank you so much. This was excellent. Feel free to come on the show whenever you like. Just give a shout if you want to talk about sustainability. Listeners, if you want to hear more, we, of course, have a giant backlog of podcasts. We also have a forum. You're welcome to jump on to talk about sustainability. We'll be having in-person events in the future as soon as we figure out what that means which I am looking forward to. If you have any thoughts on this podcast, feel free to reach out sustain OSS on Twitter, rich lit for me or D R I E S as well. Although he may not read it because he has a lot of followers. Therese, thank you so much. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. 